Hello and welcome to the second episode in our new series on an inspector calls. This is the second episode looking at context. It's a kind of a bonus episode because last time we spent all our time looking at Marxism and capitalism, um, the history of Britain and especially in the 19th and 20th centuries. Um, we, we decided that this new approach or this this next approach that we're taking now needs its its own episode it needs its own space um so we're going to do that looking at a, um objectification theory some kind of like feminist theory yeah. um and then reassessing some of the characters um that are often seen in kind of a positive light um and maybe thinking maybe rethinking our our understanding of them yeah just kind of a chance to Certainly, as an examiner on this paper i think sometimes there are uh, quite repetitive interpretations of these characters so what this episode should do today, it should just really add kind of uh, a bit more nuance, a bit more depth and layers to your understanding interpretations of those characters. Absolutely. Um, so first things first, we're going to revisit objectification theory. I say revisit because in one of the poetry episodes, I think it might have been the emigre, we looked at this um, philosophical idea of obje objectification. So it's much more than simply treating someone as an object. Um, the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy. Philosophy. A great read by all accounts. Um, kind of splits it into seven rough roughly seven there's actually a few more but we'll keep it seven um kind of sub subgroups of objectification now the all of these seven are actually listed are uh, in the kind of like the notes to this show so you might want to pause now and have those in front of you just so you can because i'm just going to reel them off um so i'll give you a second to pause and i'm just saying that as well as you know this is i'm stealing a lot of this content from alan my own lessons because i think having a more um kind of a detailed specific understanding of objectification it makes an enormous difference to your analysis of this kind of idea and, and the way this is used in the portrayal of characters so i'd really encourage particularly my students please 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 uh, do <laughs> read through these notes do understand these these concepts because it will really enrich your analysis particularly in this play okay good so there's your moment to pause as well well ted was speaking um so the first one it's in no particular order but the first one is is identified as instrumentality the treatment of a person as a tool for the objectifier's purposes. This is anyone who's, who uses anybody else just for, as, a, as a kind of, like we said last time, as a means to an end rather than an end to them, in themselves. The second and third, we're kind of going to skip over because they're not as, they're not as important to, um, to this play. Certainly you should read up on them in your own time. But we're going to skip to number four, which is fungibility, which is the treatment of a person as interchangeable with other objects. So they're kind of replaceable, disposable. Um, we then go on to violability, the treatment of a person as lacking in boundary integrity. That could be physical boundaries or emotional boundaries. Um, then we have ownership, the treatment of a person as something that is owned by another um, and they can be bought and sold. So that's kind of like, in, in most cases, that would be referring to slavery. That's like the most obvious point. Yeah. But you can, there, are, there are more subtle um, forms of ownership. Um, and then finally, denial of subjectivity, which I often think kind of covers all of the above. Mm -hmm. But that's tr a treatment of a person as something whose as, who's experience and feelings, if any, need not be taken into account. Um, so we're going to look at how, just kind of like briefly, how each character um, objectifies. Firstly, Eva Smith. So you could, you could write an, an answer about, about Eva Smith saying that basically Priestley contrives the play to show how Eva Smith has been systematically objectified by the Burlings. And then if you have a, a knowledge of... 
if you have a knowledge of, sorry, there's a motor back outside. Um, if you have a knowledge of objectification, you'll be able to go into that into much more detail as to how she's been treated by them. Not simply that they've been mean to her, that they've treated her as someone who kind of like, who has no real worth, but in a lot more detail. Sorry, we're back after a uh, brief pause there. We really did get overwhelmed by, by motorbikes. There was a, a, a litany, uh, a panoply of motorbikes. Indeed, perhaps each motorbike representing the myriad of ways in which Eva Smith is objectified in this play. Lovely. Smooth. Yeah, that's a nice segue. Good save. Um, so we did say, I, did, I was just saying, sorry, that um, if you had a, a question talking about the importance of Eva Smith um, or how she's used as a device, um, Priestley would say, well, you could write that Priestley contrived her to be so systematically objectified by the Burlings. So if we have our list of different types of objectification, you should now be kind of like thinking about how, do e how does each Burling objectify Eva Smith? So instrumentality, who treats Eva Smith as a tool for their purposes? Well, Ooh, I've got this one. Go Mr. on. Mr. Burling? Mr. Burling yes. does, absolutely. Mr. Burling treats her, treats her as a tool for his purposes when he employs her in the first place. Um, he he gives her a job for well low wages, and to her, to him, she he is just she is just cheap labour. Mm -hmm. So he can he can kind of like keep the keep the machines going in his factory, keep producing um, the goods which he then sells for a profit. And then you can link that in with your wider kind of understanding of the context. So the player that Priestley is a socialist would very much see um, kind of the dignity and the rights of the working class as being kind of hijacked, as yep. they themselves have been turned into instruments uh, of labour. As are, as are we all, as are we all in the, in the, current, in the current system. Well, anyone yeah, anyone who there. accepts a job, um, they, are, they are being, um, or even, even accepts, like you, could, you could apply this to anybody, like even um, Jeff Bezos is allowing him to be, himself to be used as a tool for us, the consumer's purpose. So it's this kind of like, kind of web that we're all, ca we're all caught in, but Mr. Burling kind of abuses that, I'd say. Um, you've got this, just this idea that it's the, the working class have been turned into these instruments for the benefit of uh, the capital accumulation yeah, of the middle class. Definitely. Um, but then we've got a kind of more subtle idea of instrumentality, which is um, like all the, the objectification of Eva Smith through instrumentality, and that's with Gerald Croft. Um, so Gerald doesn't give her a job, but he does kind of keep her as his mistress um, and therefore uses her as more of a, t a kind of a tool or of, of temporary amusement. So it was never a, a, an relationship that he was particularly invested in he knew it wasn't going to last long um, but it suited his purposes for that time um, so again you can see this there are differences in instrumentality and Gerald and Mr Burling are both equally guilty um, so then we move over to fungibility this is Mr Burling again um, and he not coming off from Crosswell in this place uh, no I know well he doesn't does he uh, he he treats Eva Smith as interchangeable when he fires her from her job to him she is simply she's no she's worth no more than what she can do on the day what she can produce at work um, she has no other no other value to him um, and he talk, he talks at length about how he had to get rid of her because she was like a ringleader yeah. he saw her as, as a kind of like a net negative to the to the business he very much kind of commodifies her denies her those human needs and yeah. that dignity and that's a really important verb actually to commodify like there's a commodification of human beings and that's what capitalism is and that's what Priestley didn't like um, well, not just that, but the kind of like the impact that had on society. Um, but then again, we go to Gerald. He also treats both, uh, well, Eva and Sheila, isn't it, to an extent, as fungible. Um, you know, he he is able to maintain a relationship with both, um, and yet he kind of like when it, when it suits him, he ch he changes one out for the other. So so he he ignores Sheila for six weeks and spends that time with with Daisy Renton, Eva Smith. 
and then when the time comes when he when he kind of like um has to has to fulfill his obligations to that to that marriage and we said remember he's conforming to a marriage that he was never really committed to um he t- he swaps Eva Smith out Daisy Renton out leaves her destitute and go and goes back to Sheila then we go on to viability and this one is like the treatment of a person is lacking in boundary integrity. We're talking about like physical and emotional boundaries. This one really refers to Eric Burling, um, as particularly with the, with the rape. Um, so he, he, he um, objectifies Eva Smith simply as, that, as an object that has no boundary integrity, something for him to take. Um, so that's, that's kind of, I, you would say, the most, the most serious and certainly the most criminal form of um, objectification. And what's interesting there with, with Eric's treatment of her, and in a minute I'm going to be talking about kind of the feminist interpret- interpretation of the play, and I don't talk too much about Eric because I think Eric's a fairly straightforward, um, there's, it's a very straightforward instance there, but the ease within which he steps into that role, yeah. that as far as we're aware, he's got no history of this behaviour, and mm. yet he so naturally forms into this role of forcing himself on her. Yeah. And the fact he's able to, to objectify her in that, in that means so um, effortlessly represents yeah. how he's being trained by society to perceive of a woman a certain way. He wants this pleasure. He's been yeah. denied it. And, it was, and, and the fact that he, he, he kind of trivialises it, like euphemism says, it's yeah. like I was in a state where a chap can turn nasty. Uh, that says it all about his own conditioning and about the kind of like the, the, the kind of almost lazy, thoughtless abuse yeah. of that power that he, that he exerts. There. And also the way in that moment, no one in that, in that scene challenges him on that yeah, language. Definitely. They allow yeah. him to yeah. escape yeah. through that, you yeah. know, and, and I think, I don't know if we're going to get onto this a little bit longer, but this is really the way, way you, if you talk like, objectification is feminist theory, it's from feminist philosophy. Um, if you, if, when people read this as a feminist play, they often kind of talk about how, um, like, Mr. Burling and, and Gerald are seen as this miso- these misogynistic characters and Eric as well. Um, but they, they never really level the, the criticism of Priestley himself. If you think about where our, um, as the audience, where our sympathies are directed, they're actually directed towards Gerald and yeah. towards Eric. Um, and now Gerald, we are going to go into a lot more detail shortly, but let's, let's kind of be absolutely clear here that Eric is the one who's guilty of an actual rape, of a crime, a, yeah. serious, a serious violent crime. And yet, to the audience, he's nowhere near as guilty as Mrs. Burling, who did, who committed no crime. She simply denied help when she shouldn't, when kind of morally she shouldn't have. Or Mr. Burling, who didn't, do, who committed no crime other than um, firing her without without much thought for her well-being. So no crime, no crime committed, and yet they're the ones to, to who uh, where all our vitriol is aimed, and then our sympathies go to the people who are who would. Yeah, like we said, that yeah, learn exactly. Mistakes, yeah. So, so I think it, like we said this about Shakespeare with Lady Macbeth, don't fall into the trap or make this the kind of easy mistake as to think that Priestley or it's like Shakespeare in that case, proto feminist. Yeah, it's, it's not. It's not. That yeah, it's not that. And, good. And, and not just case. on that as well, like I'm, I'm almost torn in this interpretation myself. But people often talk about the the silencing of Edna in this play, the kind of preeminence given to Mister Burling and the Inspector. And then mm. kind of the way he dominates the room as kind of like this male authority figure. So there is, I think, an interpretation here. And if, if you wanted a really challenging essay, I think, and you were asked on gender, you could look into, you know, is there a room for interpretation here to say that, you know, Priestley is in fact not a proto-feminist. Yeah. And I think either way, what's definitely fair to say, if we think of the chief motivations Priestley has in writing this play, um, kind of offering... Uh, comments and gender it's not at the 
first and foremost priority. No, certainly not. It's Second almost incidental yeah. in this play. Yes, definitely. Um, so then we go on to denial of subjectivity, and this is this is Mrs. Burling, but kind of like to an extreme extent. So you know, she she was happy. We talked about her competitive nature. Um, she was happy to send um, Eva Smith out, kind of like cold and alone and penniless, pregnant to to die essentially, and for her child to die, um, <coughs> because she treated her as if her thoughts and experiences and her feelings need not be taken into account. Yeah. She saw her as a girl of that class, a girl of that sort. She's um, always kind of dehumanising yeah, her, generalising her in terms of the yeah. social class. And equally, it, um, Sheila does that too when she has a fire from, um, from Millwood's. She kind of like, she thinks that because she's, because she's pretty, um, she looks like she kind of like didn't have a care in the world from, from Sheila's point of view. Um, that if she got fired, she's like, oh, she'll be fine. But, <coughs> But obviously, she she doesn't appreciate kind of like the the seriousness of um of losing of losing your work, if you, losing your job, especially if you're a working class woman um in Edwardian Britain. Um, so again, that that gives us a kind of like whistle stop tour of how each Burling um ob- like objectifies Eva Smith, and as we can see, like they're they're pretty relentless and and merciless in the way that they act. And I th- you know I'm I'm a big fan of kind of the you bring this you know. The, this theoretical approach with objectification to the table and the spectacles. And I think one of the things I like about this is when we go back and look at certain uh, of the texts we've studied, it really enriches our analysis of them as well. So I'm just thinking of my last duchess and kind yep. of his relationship with her and that he denies her that subjectivity. Is that where we did? That's where we did objectification, isn't it? It may not be. I th- but I think there's once you have a good understanding of objectivity through this or ob- objectification through this yeah. text, I think it will really enrich your analysis of the other texts. It so I'd really does, encourage yeah. you to kind of get get a conceptual familiarity with this yep. and uh, make it a natural, um, comfortable part of your analysis. Because because if nothing else, it's like a bonus paragraph to your essay. Yeah. Like you could be write you could write you could write about kind of like the the, the generation gap and talk about how they objectify her differently, or you could write about um, I don't know Eric and just yeah. talk about his like all all the context, but also his objectification. So character theme this always adds kind of uh, depth to your analysis. It definitely but, gets you into that kind of critical exploration territory in that yeah, band yeah. six in your. Much. And you and you, that that's what you want. You want to set yourself apart. So don't be afraid of something that's a little bit different and a little bit more challenging. Just be clear on the way that you explain yeah. it. Um, right. So we're just going to move on quickly because uh, the what we kind of left off on last time was Mister Burling and Sheila's relationship. So we Eva Smith is obviously objectified by all of these characters, but Sheila, as the other young woman in the play, even though like she's actually on stage, um, she is also objectified. Um, so if we look at we look at um, what Mr. Burling wanted to get from this bourgeois marriage, this extension of business, as Marx would have seen it, and Priestley would have probably conformed to that idea too. So he uses Sheila as um, an instrument for his purposes when he organises the when arranges the marriage to Gerald Croft. Um, so he wanted he wanted to bring two firms together. He wanted to turn a rival into an ally, um, and he he uses he uses Sheila to to achieve that. He hands Sheila over to this guy who clearly isn't the best match for her. Mm-hmm. Similarly, you were seeing her we're seeing her used as um, basically he's objectifying his ownership. She said, she you said commodified. Yeah. He's commodified his own daughter to be bought and sold to be given to somebody else. And this idea of selling your daughter to somebody else for your own selfish purposes. I mean, to a modern, it's kind of like post-romantic sensibility. It's awful. Yeah, it's awful. It's awful even to countenance. Just as a small thing in my mind, I'm imagining that awful uh, thing cartoon characters do when they start prioritizing money. They have the uh, dollar sign in their eyes. Yeah, exactly. He literally has that moment, and I think. 
the way he try, treats his daughter is very telling. Yeah. Um, but it's also, it's not just money. It's a, it, the other thing that he's, that he's looking for is his own social status. Yeah. You know, he's trying it's to obsessed. shake off his provincial background and, and um, rise in the, in the ranks of the British hierarchy. So to use his daughter, again, as a means to that end. Like we, we, again, we, we need to bring this back to what Priestley's doing. This is a polemic against capitalism and the class yeah. system. He's saying that this, this system is so pervasive, it, it's so insidious, that fathers can do this to their daughters mm. and think that it's normal, it's normalised behaviour. Um, so, that, so that's the kind of like the, a, a slightly kind of more nuanced approach to objectification. Um, so I think <coughs> we, we're going to move on now to look at Gerald. We, yeah, just, just one more point on that, though, that I think is about interesting Mr. Burling. And we'll, we'll go on to talk about this in a little bit more detail when we look at uh, social class uh, as a theme later in the series. But I think what's also important there is that Mr. Burling objectifies himself in a sense as well. Mm-hmm. In that he, and it brings to mind that kind of famous um, adage, um, when you have a certain mindset um, and you think of yourself as a hammer, every problem in the world becomes a nail. So as kind of a businessman, as this man who's obsessed with social status... You made and, a right hash of that, didn't and you? Money. Yeah, I did. When all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Absolutely. Yeah. But he sees that kind of opportunity in every instance. When there's a problem, what's the solution? How can he kind of make his status better off there? Yeah. And I think when we look at how he sycophantically talks with Gerald, how he degrades himself, you know, his daughter is an extension of his own flesh and blood. So mm. to a certain extent, to commodify her is to degrade himself as well and to degrade his family. But he's fine in doing that, in debasing his family in order to get you know, higher up that hierarchy. Mm-hmm. But that's what he's obsessed with because he's internalised that narrative about social status, yeah. about worth. And he's turned into this, um, um, this awful man as a result. And I think, you know, again, if, I, if I'm reading a, an answer, I do want to see that sort of objectivity with Mr. Burling, that there is a degree of sympathy there, that he is as a neurotic, anxious character who's obsessed with social status yeah that's what's led him down this well path. you need to read him as a product of the system yeah i keep saying this and it's worth repeating over and over again this is an attack not on an individual called burling but on a system called yeah. capitalism and, and british classes and it's not about the people they're they're simply <coughs> they're simply vehicles like comparative vehicles to describe different aspects of of, of society as from Bruce's eyes which leads us nicely on to gerald croft and we're just going to think of kind of uh, a feminist interpretation of the text now, in particular um, focusing on the characters of Gerald Croft and Mrs. Berlin, because I think they give us uh, a really interesting uh, way into this question. Um, so first of all, just to set out the stall, you know, I think when it comes to feminist interpretation of the text, you know, there is an argument. Is this kind of like a, a proto-feminist text? Is Priestley pushing a feminist narrative here? There would be disagreement on that. What I think is undeniable is that Priestley definitely believes that women have a greater role to play in society, that women have been objectified by the system they're in, uh, that women are in need of greater respect, and that the behaviour of men in, in various aspects has not been, um, has not been good enough. Um, having said that, you know, Priestley is, and certain parts of the text are, in woke speak, problematic but not ideal Um, so this is an interpretation what I'm going to say about Gerald Croft now is my and our particular interpretation but there are there are nuances and I think another thing to just be aware of is that you can read the characters um, post Priestley like Mm -hmm. a you can still have a modern interpretation of what these characters represent and not necessarily infer the motivation of Priestley when he wrote them so you know like we said um, these Gerald Gerald can be a creep yeah. Even if even if Priestley didn't write him as a creep, not, just not looking at him with that kind of modern lens and yeah. the language he uses. 
So, you know, I, I think Gerald's a really interesting character in that since uh, the new um, kind of GCSE uh, mark scheme has come in and since, you know, kind of the increase in challenge, we've seen a gradual evolution in the way that Gerald Croft has, pupils and candidates have responded to Gerald Croft. So initially he was kind of seen, we were getting a lot of responses where people were talking about this character as someone who is torn between his family and between um, uh, uh, Daisy Renton. Then we're seeing this more critical approach where actually, you know, I loved your expression there. He, he has this kind of temporary pleasure and he kind of objectifies her. Uh, but he does enjoy that. But then also ultimately he chooses the social status his parents guarantee him. But I think what we can see with Gerald Croft is to an extent he represents the kind of the lascivious, uh, kind of possessive male attitude at the time, the very sexualized male gaze. And the word that I often think of when I think of Gerald Croft is there's a real predatory streak to him. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, th there's definitely evidence of that in the text. I mean, I think some people can see him as a sympathetic character because, you know, he definitely seems uh, emotionally conflicted. He definitely seems upset by the passing of Daisy Renton. He expresses guilt over his abandonment of her. He makes all the right noises. But two things are kind of a giveaway. One is the actual language he uses, which we'll come on to in a moment. And the other is that, you know, at the end of the play, he's very much a character who hasn't learned from his mistakes, who's refused to embrace those lessons. And so we can clearly see Priestley doesn't want to set him up as an example. Yeah, well, even the inspector, the, the mouthpiece of Priestley yeah. kind of absolves him of, of some responsibility, seeing yeah. that at least he had some affection for her. Um, he gives, still gives him a stern telling off, but that, I mean, that says it all, doesn't it? Like yeah. the, fact, the fact that he is this predatory character um, and yet Priestley, who's supposed to be the voice of justice, the inspector, the voice of justice, simply says, oh, well, you know, you shouldn't have done that. You shouldn't have set yeah. her up as your mistress. Um, but at least you had some affection for her, so you're not as bad as the other lot. And I, I do think to a certain extent, teachers and pupils sometimes adopt that interpretation as well. Yeah. But I think there, there is, there's more to be understood here. So let's just think about the, how the affair begins between Gerald Croft and uh, Daisy Renton. Also, I'm suffering for what I can describe as a brutal cold here. So please forgive me for my uh, even more monotonous than usual voice. Um, so, you know, what's very clear is that, uh, you know, quote, women of the town frequent uh, the Palace Variety Theatre, the Stoll's bar that he's at. And yet Gerald Croft straightway knows to go to that bar, knows there's going to be women of the town there. And that hints at the sort of lifestyle he may live. You know, he's described as kind of, uh, you know... Uh, a man about town. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So it hints that he may be in the habit of kind of picking up women who are in a vulnerable state. Uh, a really interesting quotation that, that paints Gerald in a deeply problematic light is this. I hate those hard-eyed, doe-faced women. So he talks about the women who are at the bar and he says, I hate those hard-eyed, doe-faced women. And, you know, there's a really interesting aspect here that you know this bar is frequented by women who are in desperate situations women who are uh using uh the kind of sexuality and using their bodies to try and to kind of get by really and yet he's bringing up this word hate i hate those hard-eyed you know why are they hard-eyed well perhaps because you know they're they're not really actually displaying affection for the men they're flirting with they're talking with they're merely trying to kind of get this capitalist exchange and he says he hates that so he reverts to, rather than empathising with these women in the situation they're in, he reverts to this kind of disgusting, loathing attitude, which reveals a, a refusal to empathise with them, a refusal to kind of understand why they're in the situation they're with, instead kind of refer, reverting back to a much more misogynistic um, attitude. You know, misogyny is literally the hatred of women. Here, he literally says it. And then what's really interesting is he notes, he, he sees Eva Smith, Daisy Renton in this moment, and... It's almost, it's literally the next line. I noticed a girl. Mm. 
So there's that really interesting lexical contrast between women and girl. He hates these women and he sees a girl. And that's where we see this really worrying insight into Gerald's predatory mind. He notices this girl, he goes on to say, she was very pretty. So again, pretty. What he's doing here is, you know, Daisy Renton at this point is a grown woman, but he's infantilizing her. He's referring to her as a child. And, you know, what every feminist will tell you is that there's a worrying um, infantilization of women in yeah. kind of Western culture. In that if we think of uh, pop stars who are held up as these kind of sexual icons and who there's this really uncomfortable narrative around, mm. often you know, it really focuses on their youth. Yeah. And there's definitely a really worrying relationship between the kind of the modern male sexual attitude in the 20th century and 21st century and the kind of the youthful characteristics of the women of the recipient end of that. And there's been lots of kind of feminist uh, exploration and dialogues around how women kind of aren't allowed to grow old, they have to remain youthful. And we can very much see Gerald representing that here. He goes on to describe her, her soft brown hair and in particular her big dark eyes. You know, we associate the big eyes there as, you know, in association with kind of innocence and naivety. He sees here a woman who, well, a girl who is vulnerable, mm -hmm. who is trusting and who needs someone. And that's really what strikes an interest in him. He has, he's scanning in that really predatory fashion across the bar. He sees this girl, naive, trusting, vulnerable. Tick, tick, tick. Everything he's looking for. As he moves on, and he kind of justifies what he liked about her to uh, the inspector. He says, you know, she looks young and fresh and charming. Mm -hmm. And I think if we talk about the objectification there, the way he lists off these traits, yeah. and particularly the problematic young and fresh. Yeah. Fresh, that, that very much links back with, you know, in the Victorian poems you will have looked at, this idea of the purity of women, the kind of idea they needed to remain kind of unblemished, untouched. And that's definitely what we see that attracts Gerald in this moment. Again, he literally says she looked young, very problematic, very predatory. Um, and what I think is really interesting is we see the way Gerald sets up this relationship. When she's being harassed by Alderman Hagarty, he says that she, has, she was looking at him almost with a cry for help. And I think what Gerald builds up is a narrative where she's this damsel in stress and he's the hero to rescue her. The fairy prince. Absolutely. And what, you know, what feminists will say at this point, at the understanding is that in this moment, he builds himself up as having the power, having control, having the hero, and she's this character who needs complete and utter dependency upon him. Yeah. And as we see the relationship develop, that's exactly what happens. And that's what attracts Gerald to her. The fact that he can have all the power and she's this kind of vulnerable, desperate woman who completely needs to rely on him. And then what he's really attracted to is not so much her, but how she makes him feel. The power she makes him feel he has. The dependency, the vulnerability, the fact she can't survive without him. What he loves or what he's attracted to is not her, but in fact the power she gives him. And what you know, feminists would say at this point is that represents the patriarchal attitude towards sexual relations. It's about dominance. It's about certain control. It's not about respect and equality, but it's about power. Now, later on, it kind of, on the next page, he's kind of trying to explain himself to the inspector. And I think there's a brilliant Freudian slip here um, in, in the way he kind of justifies himself. And Freudian slip, it's just this idea that as you're kind of speaking, you subconsciously reveal your true attitude. Mm. And I think that we really see that in this quotation. He says to the inspector, and again, he says it carefully, which, and stage directions carefully to the inspector, which implies that he's, he's, exercising great care with his words here and yet he still slips i want you to understand that i didn't install her there so that i could make love to her 
So in this moment, he's like, look, it wasn't about sex. It wasn't about power. I just was trying to help her. And yet I didn't install her there. Mm. He's talking about how he set her up in his friend's flat, which was secretive that no one would have known about so that he could conduct his nefarious ways, etc. And he talks about installing her. And that links back in perfectly with that point about objectification. Ultimately, she is an object. Ultimately, she is an instrument for his pleasure. She's not someone to be respected. She's not someone to be seen as an equal. She's something to be used to bring him that satisfaction, both sexually and also in terms of the power dynamic. Mm. But there's not a relationship of equality. There's not a relationship of respect. Yeah, and I think it's just really interesting to, after hearing all of that, to reiterate the point that we're reading this from our 21st century lens. Yeah. Um, and we're thinking of a 21st century audience. Um, but again, Priestley does not give Gerald too much of a tough time. No. Um, the inspector doesn't give him too much of a tough time. So if we're, re- if we're reading this and analysing it, we need to be critical of the character, but also critical of the writer too. He obviously was a hostage to his time, but just be aware that he's not this kind of, uh, like we said, this feminist writer. Yeah. Um, so I think just the last character to it that we haven't really dealt with um, when it comes to this, this idea of objectification is... Mrs. Burling. Yeah. And I, I think Mrs. Burling is such, uh, such a fascinating character in this play and the role she plays in that she is, to many extents, a caricature of the aristocracy. She's this kind of uh, over-exaggerated, villainous, shrill, detestable woman. There are so few sympathetic characteristics that she displays here. It's a real hit job in that there's... With yeah. Mr. Burling, there's certain moments where you might feel... Um, sympathy towards him. There's certain moments where he seems on the precipice of accepting responsibility. Yeah. Mrs. Burling never even gets close. And yeah. That does the beg the she, question? She she almost kind of chokes up when Eric accuses her of killing yeah. her, her his child. But um, even then, she's pretty quick to turn that yeah. around. So it's it's kind of like the idea of like a, a sociopath shows empathy <coughs> when they feel they should show empathy. When it's expected. And I feel like that's that's definitely Mrs. Burling. So from the from the, from the feminist perspective, then that interpretation. We can very much see that Mrs. Burling represents the subjugation and control of, in particular, uh, middle-class women in Edwardian society. We see that she's clearly internalised the values and narrative of a patriarchal society in the way that she engages with the other characters, in particular her daughter, but also Gerald as well. She's constantly policing the norms, she's constantly policing behaviour, and that's really important within any um, society. And In order to preserve the power structures of society, you need someone to be policing that. You need someone to say, that's wrong, you can't do that. And not necessarily those in authority, but those with social power, those with soft power. They're constantly kind of saying, you can do this, you can't do that. In those daily interactions, they set the guidelines and the rules. And that's really, on a day-to-day basis, how power works in society. And we see that she very much sets herself up for this role from the beginning, um, in kind of the early dinner party scene in Act One. Uh, Sheila refers to her brother as a squiffy, and she says, Sheila... What an expression. Really, the things you girls pick up these days. So again, we see a disapproving tone. And we also see, interestingly from Mrs. Burling, the infantilization and the kind of the childish treatment and the patronizing of her daughter, who is a grown woman. She's very much keeping her in that childish role. Why? Well, because Mrs. Burling, as a, um, as a kind of a sexist in the society, believes that you're not truly a woman until you're married and you have your old household. So she refuses to respect her daughter as an equal, as an adult. She looks down upon her. Mm. You know, this goes on when you know, Sheila has the temerity to tease Gerald about disappearing for several weeks or several months during their courtship. And she says to her, now, Sheila, don't tease him. When you're married, you'll realise that men with important work to do sometimes have to spend 
and she goes on time and energy away. So she justifies the behaviour of Gerald. And there's no better proof for the fact she's internalised this narrative through her own experiences and her her own life. She's been raised to believe that men ultimately have the right to kind of check out of uh, their relationships, check out their lives and spend months and weeks away. And that's to be expected. And not only does she believe that, she passes on that value system to her daughter. Yeah. And so with the feminist interpretation... Is that tacit acceptance of objectification? Like that your role is to be objectified and and that's not something to be argued against, it's just something to be accepted. And I I think whenever you look at a power structure, to, to preserve a power structure, what you want to happen is for the people at the bottom of that pyramid, that hierarchy, the people who are subjugated and controlled, to accept and believe that they are in the rightful role. Uh, small examples uh, in kind of uh, on cotton farms in uh, you know, slave labor America, they would have certain slaves who would be in charge of whipping slaves who were who were falling behind in their work. Yeah. Okay. In pop culture, they referred to as kind of Uncle Tom's. That was a role designated. In the ghettos of Poland during uh, the Holocaust, there were uh, certain uh, Jewish uh, people who were in, ta- in tasked with policing others and reporting yeah. people who were trying to escape. And people took on these roles and they internalised the narratives around themselves as people. They dehumanised and objectified themselves. And we definitely see that with the way Mrs. Burling was behaving. And we just see this constantly. She constantly places, at one moment she says, when um, talking about Gerald's revealing his affair, he says, it would be much better if Sheila didn't listen to this story at all. Mm. So in her treatment of her daughter, we see how she's internalised the narratives and internalised the values of a patriarchal society. And yes... That makes her an unsympathetic character, but in, as explorers of a text, our, our duty is to empathise with characters and to understand their motives. And I think this is a text where you can do that with these characters. You can do that with Mr. Burling, and you can do that with Mrs. Burling. And bring back to your point earlier, Al, they're very much products of their society. Mrs. Burling, having grown up and been raised in a patriarchal society, has been indoctrinated to accept the same misogynistic values that subjugate women, that infantilise them, that um, see them as inferiors. And she not only um, has accepted these, but she polices these and promotes them within her own family dynamic. Certainly does. Um, Brilliant. Okay, so that that kind of ties off our context episodes. Um, Really interesting stuff with Inspector Calls. Like we said at the start of the first episode, it's definitely a a play that is more the message than the the art. Um, but if you have a really strong knowledge of that message, then you can you can analyse any aspect of the play from from a word to stage direction uh, to to a really um, kind of interesting and perceptive level. So thank you for listening along. I hope you enjoyed it. Until next time. See you later, English nerds. Bye from us. Bye bye.